Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast. This is episode 238. I'm your host, Ryan Tansom. On today's show, we have Mike Smirkelow, who is the author of Mr. Monkey and Me, a real survivor guide for entrepreneurs. And he's also the co-founder of the VC firm Next Coast Ventures, which helps the best entrepreneurs in the world as they build disruptive businesses. The team at Next Coast Ventures has raised over $7 billion in capital and created exit values of over $30 billion. Mike's going to share the mindset that brought him success, how he gained it, and what he learned along the way. I'm excited to have him on the show because most people think that what he's accomplished is way out of reach, and that's just not the case. We're going to be talking about how Mike bought his first business, grew it for over a decade to go public, the mechanics of his different rounds of financing for Next Coast Ventures. Also, you can see just how doable it is. Listen in for tips on managing and treating customers, the benefits of getting that monkey that Mike's referring to under control and what it means to understand finances and operations and how to align both of those with the right mindset and your long-term goals and how to get your team on board and why he'd never make a deal without tying equity to both sides of the table. Mike has achieved 40% year-over-year growth, so this is an episode that you don't want to miss. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy my interview with Mike Smirklow. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Mike, how are you doing today? I'm great, Ryan. Great to be here. I am looking forward to this conversation. We got introduced uh, by a friend, Jason Dorsey, who I, I loved the interview that I did with him. And I don't know exactly how you guys know each other, but um, that you also wrote your book through a, a mutual friend that I've given it a shot once. So, and you've done a lot of stuff that I'm excited to dive into so maybe for the listeners, why don't you just give us a quick little rundown of you, what you guys are doing at Next Coast Ventures, how you got to where you are, and then we can go back and unpack the whole story. Yeah, I'll try and get, I'll, I'll give you the brief version. I mean, the, the roots of it is I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, in the rough part of Toledo, Ohio. People always ask me if there's a good part. I think there is, but but I didn't <laughs> see it growing up and was fortunate in a way to, to get myself to college took jobs out of college in the financial services industry, really just wanted to understand business, was attracted to that. So I did a job in, first job as a CPA. It's one of those jobs you walked in and 36 <laughs> hours in, you go, what the hell have I done? <laughs> um, but you know, I made it a couple of years. Then I went to investment banking, did that for two years, sucked the life out of me, but I learned a lot. Went to business school at Northwestern and then moved out to Silicon Valley in the late 90s. Um, there from there, I was able to work. I got really lucky. A common theme in my life, I got to work for two great entrepreneurs, uh, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz. They've now gone on to venture capital fame, but I got to work for them for two years to see an idea from nothing all the way through IPO. Uh, and then I quit, raised a small pool of capital to, to run my own business. I wanted to be an entrepreneur, just didn't have a great idea. So I went a different path and bought a small business uh, called Service Source. I ran that business for almost 13 years. I took it from a few million in revenue, almost up to 300 million, all the way through an IPO, was a public company CEO for three and a half years. Uh, and then I retired, moved to chairman, moved to Austin, and then started my current gig, co-founded a firm called Next Coast Ventures in Austin, Texas, where we invest in early stage technology companies in the next coast of the United States. Yeah, there's as you can probably tell the for everybody that's listening, this is gonna be hard to figure out which which thread to pull first. <laughs> you wrote a book, maybe let's just start there, Mike. Like, why did you write the book? And you know, because I think you know, a book is a hard experience as I have failed at so far of trying to synthesize all your thoughts into something that makes coherently makes sense for everybody. And I'm assuming that had a lot to do with your takeaways and your experiences. So what's the name of the book? And then, you know, what were you trying to get across for, for the readers? Yeah, the book is called Mr. Monkey and Me, A Real Survival Guide for Entrepreneurs. It is, uh, by the way, I always forget to mention it, all the proceeds go to charity. 
I set up a scholarship for students who are interested in entrepreneurship who come from a diverse or underrepresented background. So oh, first and foremost, cool. any listening, if you buy the book, know Go that it. it's going to a, a good cause. Um, but why I wrote the book, you know, I, I like to write, I write under, under at mikesmerklow.com. I had started after I, after I was done running a public company, I started to see this interesting void between just practical advice to entrepreneurs and the more I dug into it and the more I did some blog writing, I found this really big void. And I think your podcast hits a lot. Why well, I love your podcast because it kind of hits in that same vein, which is there's either this uh, cheap, you know, short blog post that tells you what Elon to do you know, before <laughs> Elon Musk gets up for breakfast or how Bob Iger ran Disney. And you're like, that doesn't help me. Um, or it's very specific how to write a business plan and stuff that's important. But I didn't find anything that was talking about the mental aspect of entrepreneurship. And that's what I wrote the book. The book actually takes a character, Mr. Monkey, who's the real star, and shows how he showed up in my life uh, and how I have struggled and still struggle to overcome the voice of fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And also, I've seen other people do it. It's not just how I saw Ben and Mark and other entrepreneurs do it, how my own experience, and now invested in over 50 different companies, how I see entrepreneurs handle the mental aspect well, and also mistakes that I made or others make and, and hopefully help others avoid those. So it's it's a very unique and very timely topic, Mike, because like, you know, I think that it's this, like you said, it's the, where's the practical side of this, which is I've been trying to figure this out for years of like, okay, you know, like you said, you know, there's a lot of fluff out there, but then there's something that there's stuff that's too technical. And how, like, how do you take the visions that entrepreneurs have or want to be entrepreneurs, take that vision and then make it a reality and something that's practical. And like, so where did you like, what were some of the big things that you were highlighting in the book? Like, what are the things that help people make the jump and then take, you know, you said that you, you bought a company versus start one. So whether you're buying or selling or buying or starting, like, what are like, what, what is the self doubt? What is the monkey that you're referring to? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I've always had this thing. And I talk about it in the, in the book. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, have a chip on their shoulder for a variety of reasons. Mine, you know, basically growing up with not great role models. I talk, and openly talking about the book. I saw disease, divorce, alcoholism, you know, a lot of must be nice kind of thinking was what you know, my, my grandma, rest in peace, would see someone who would achieve some modicum of success. And she'd always say, well, must be nice, right? And that was kind of the mindset of the folks that, that raised me. And I got the courage to try and break out of that mold. And I found myself consistently being pulled back. And there was a time in my life that I thought, you know, certain level of achievement, certain level of education, certain level of professional success, certain level of uh, financial results and, and having a house or whatever the hell you want to talk about it, that, that somewhere along the line that that monkey voice that was telling me I wasn't good enough or I couldn't do it would go away. And I used to just call it my inner voice. And then I found it helpful to characterize it, make it a caricature. <laughs> Label that thing. Big hairy beast. <laughs> um, and, you know, to your point in the book, I joke like, you know, even for this podcast, the thing was in my office saying, yeah, no one's going to listen to you. We're like, Ryan's podcast is really good, but no one's going to give a shit about what Mike says. That's the voice that I've had to deal with. And I think it shows up different for different, different people, but it never goes away. And so what I tried to do in the book was one, share some stories, most of them mistakes, not too many. Uh, it's not a victory lap. It's more cringeworthy, dumb shit that I did. But then also give a practical formula. But really, it's just lessons I've learned. And then it's even very specific things in every chapter that can help put this into practice. How to get help. Okay, we'll join a professional organization. You and I were talking before the show. How yeah. can you get into something like YPO or, or other areas? There's a bunch of resources out there. So I tried to make it as practical and specific as possible. And what's interesting, Mike, it, and like... I'll maybe kind of give you a couple of concepts of how I've tried to like articulate this gap in the marketplace of, so like what I find interesting is that you went through the finance route, like deep into the finance road, CPA to investment banker, to MBA, to working for a, a company that then went IPO. So you got a real solid financial background and foundation to understand valuations, value growth, what is truly valued in the marketplace and then you have like these entrepreneurs that I see so many times, Mike, where they have this vision of this problem or opportunity that they want to solve in the marketplace that is so like burning the passion inside of them, but don't have the background that you got. And then they, they get that like jolt of financial knowledge when they're selling their company. 
Yeah. And it's just like this, wait a second, if I would have known this would have grown value, would have done things differently, would have had more choices. And so it's just like kind of going over to the overarching theme of the, as you and I were kicking out the conversation is this blend of, I have a vision and I've got doubts on my vision, but I have this thought of what I want to do with my life and my business, but then I don't know how to get there practically. <laughs> like, yep. And so there's the mental and the financial aspect that are completely intertwined. Or inter, inter, I'm having trouble speaking too. <laughs> <laughs> I've 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 that effect on a lot of podcast hosts. So <laughs> <laughs> good, we can mutually yeah. speak like yeah. monkeys. I like it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll jump around like Harry Aches, make sign language. Well, you know, it's, what, I think what you're getting at, Ryan, is is I found, and this is where the mental aspect really seems tied together. I see so many entrepreneurs, and they may have amazing ideas, but they don't know how to get there, or they're they're doubting it. But the other point to your your aspect on the financial side, and I've listened to some of the podcasts, which are super helpful for someone thinking about buying or selling a business, is is where do you get help? And in the acronym, first the letter is S is self awareness. The second letter is help. And I find I went through this when I was first an entrepreneur. I thought, well, I'm the I'm the entrepreneur. I'm the CEO. I should know everything. And I felt like at some point asking for help was a a confession of weakness. And then mm -hmm. over time, through a lot of <laughs> near-death experiences, professional near-death experiences, I realized if I don't get some help, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flame out. But I think like if you're you're getting ready to sell your business or you're thinking about the financial side, it's like you don't have to know everything, but you have to know what you're good at, and then you sure have to go look for some help. Uh, and that's really one of the core mental aspects that I talk about in the book. Um, go, going back to your first one, which is the self-awareness. So I had Todd Herman on my show, uh, the alter ego effect, and because uh, I dealt with this, it's still, I think everybody that's a normal human being deals with this self-doubt and this narrative. And I said that, you know, I talked about the imposter syndrome. He's like, oh, that's been totally mainstream. It's bullshit. And it's, you know, it's, I love that he gave me some solid pushback. And like, I think there's this, like, I'm curious as to how this relates to your journey in your book of like, there's the, you know, you chip on your shoulder, whatever it was that you're not good at school. You had some issues going on, like whatever that, that fuels the reason to become an entrepreneur. And then you have to literally fake it till you make it, whether you're raising money or getting your first customers, you're hiring your first big hires. You kind of have to do that in order to like get the momentum, but it never goes away. So yeah. like where in your journey did you experience that? And then how did you deal with it? Uh, well, every step of the way, candidly, I mean, it, uh, um, let me, I want to go back because you hit on something really important, this whole fake it till you make it or imposter syndrome. I mean, I'd, I'd love to chat with them a second because yeah, for sure. I, I hate that term, fake it till you make it, not because I don't understand what it connotes, what I think it is a dangerous one. I think there's a very thin line between having passion and vision and the energy to go pursue both of those. You know, I've, mm -hmm. I've got a vision, I want energy behind it, and I'm going to bring that enthusiasm that is absolutely vital in any aspect of entrepreneurship. The risk is if you say fake it till you make it, that can lead, and I've seen it happen, it can lead entrepreneurs to start to do some things that, are, that, that start to cross into unethical lines. That's why you I hate that mean, term. Like from WeWork and all, like all that. Yeah, kind just of. everything. And, or just, you know, or, or starting to, I think there's a whole, when you, if you read anything about Steve Jobs and he had this uh, reality distortion, I'm gonna convince mm -hmm. the world of what's gonna happen that's vision, right? That's vision of where the world's going and predicting it and then having all the energy to go after it. That's very different than misstating how far along your business is or pushing something forward about how long your product is. And that's why, that's why I always call that out. Whenever I hear that term, I'm like, no, 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 no. Passion, vision, energy, don't fake it is uh is just a dangerous word, but, but anyways, yeah, I, so I, no, yeah. actually like one comment on that too. It's almost like the Thomas Edison, you know, 10,000 ways not to make a light bulb. Like, you're not faking it. You're just trying and that you're yeah, using exactly. your passion and energy and excitement of what the future can be to overcome those miserable failures. <laughs> yeah. That's a brilliant way to put it is you are looking for, you have a vision, you've got energy around it. You're not, you're going to get turned down. That's the thing. No is going to happen multiple times. So how can you continue to evolve and move forward? I think that's a much, much better way to put it. So then go, go back to your journey then, like how, like, cause the book came out of something. So like, what was going on? I mean, you've done some pretty crazy stuff. So like how in each step of your journey, what were good building blocks that, you know, that led you to the five steps and led you to, I don't know if you got real examples as you're kind of diving in. 
Yeah, I mean, so so a lot of it was based on mistakes, and I think, and I, I don't want it's not a humble brag. I mean, listen, I listen, I had a great run. I took a company that was over was worth over a billion dollars when we went public, and it was very lucrative for myself and my investors. Next Coast Ventures has almost almost a quarter of a billion dollars of assets under management. So I'm not coming here and and trying to say I'm just a uh, I've screwed everything up. That's not the point. The point was more I did make a lot of mistakes. I learned a lot, and I've seen entrepreneurs. Be much better at certain aspects of mental tenacity than I was. I give an example in the book. I mean, it's a, a pretty, pretty specific one about when I was trying to hire a head of sales. I didn't know how to do it. I felt that I, I had this belief early on in my entrepreneur career that, well, you just go hire an expert. But I really didn't go deep enough to understand what type of expert I wanted. So I tell this story, which the punchline is, if I can give one piece of business advice, uh, Ryan, is don't hire coke addicts. <laughs> they're really, they're really, they're very fun at parties, but they tend not to be reliable. Uh, they don't show up on time. But the punchline to that, or this joke behind the punchline, is my first executive I hired went to my board, did all the reference checks, ended up being had to develop a, a raging coke problem. So we had to terminate him. And I talk about that in the book about a you know pretty good advice: don't hire a coke addict. But two, I didn't know what I was doing. And I went to this, I'll never forget, I drove down, and I talk about this book, there was this great coach in, in Silicon Valley called Bill Campbell. He used to be the football coach at Columbia, then he's, he went on to be CEO of Intuit, and then he became literally the CEO whispered everyone from CEO, Steve Jobs used him, Apple, Google, all of the CEOs would go to Bill for advice. I was fortunate to have a relationship with him, and, and I, I drove down one time from San Francisco to Palo Alto, sit down at this bar that uh, he was part owner called the old pro and Bill's this, you know, gruff voice. Rawr, 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 rawr. <laughs> so I sit down have, you know, I'm halfway through a beer and feeling like shit, tired, all this stuff, you know, like, what am I doing? I've had to fire now three VPs of sales. I didn't know what I'm doing. And Bill gave me phenomenal advice. And this became the H in the formula. He's like, well, who's giving you help? I said, well, I don't, I don't have time. He's like, well, who's your coach? Well, I don't have time for a coach. I'm running a company. I, you know, all the things the entrepreneurs go through. I don't have time for that stuff. And he, he said it very succinctly. He's like, well, Tiger Woods has a coach and Steve Jobs has a coach. Why wouldn't Mike Smirklow not have a coach? Pretty good advice, but then also very practical. And what it really opened my eyes is to say back to that, I don't know what I'm doing in hiring out of sales. I, I really am lost here. But then the second thing is everything you're trying to do in life, I remind myself all the time, someone somewhere has done it. And so that spurred me to go find someone I knew, help me hire a great VP of sales and literally turned our business into a, a rocket ship. So it's just, I, I try and bring stories like that, but the, the book's filled with dumb things I did, or I've seen other people do. And then how you can judo that, get some mental, uh, use the framework to hopefully avoid it or, or contradict some prior behaviors. What do you think the biggest hurdle is for other entrepreneurs reaching out for help? Like why did it take you so long and what, what's the main problem that people have? Well, I think, I really think it's actually, I do think self-awareness has a lot of it. I think there's just we, we've been doing this analysis at Next Coast with my my partner, uh, my co-founder. We've been looking back over two funds, and we've been fortunate to have some really successful uh, outcomes or business progress. And we've been looking and saying, what is the key determinant? And when I got into venture, I was quite convinced there'd be one or two attributes that all entrepreneurs have. Turns out there really isn't. I've seen introverts. I've seen extroverts. I've seen all sorts of folks, but I really haven't been able to. There, there really is not one attribute. With this one thing, I do think self-awareness might be. I've done the empirical research on this, but it might be the most important attribute in success. Because by being aware, and what I mean by that is, what am I good at? What am I not good at? What do I like to do? What do I not like to do? Because if you have some clarity around that, and not not bullshit, not like, I think, yeah. you know, it's the old, if you ask 10 people, are you a good driver? And, and all 10 people raise their hands. Well, there should never be accidents, right? But so, <laughs> you know, it, it's kind of like, what are, you, what are you good at as back to or shown by the world? What are you not good at? And then applying that to say, okay, then how, where do I need help? But I really think it starts with that. And then there comes that whole, like, should I, or does, is this a sign of weakness? At least that's how it showed up for me. So then, I don't know. How do you, do you, well, I mean, you, you've, you've obviously run and, and sold in a business. Does that resonate or how do you find yeah, it? Yeah, it does. And um, we'll, offline, we'll talk about the whole, uh, <laughs> what not to do <laughs> about the yeah. uh, hiring the cocaine attic. I've got my own story with that too. So <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, I agree with that. And then self-awareness and help. Honestly, Mike, you know, it's crazy from my own perspective and then the people that are on the show and our clients, like, I think a, it, a lot of these themes tied together. So you go, you know, you talk about like, 
a lot of entrepreneurs start with a chip off their shoulder because like, you know, I mean, the countless people that I've interviewed that were dyslexic or ADD or whatever it is. So they kind of have this prove it attitude, yep. which kind of inherently reinforces the don't ask for help because help has screwed you for a lot of times in your life. I mean, that's just a, you know, comment part of a theme. So I think there's this challenge of like asking for help is validating the things that you didn't like in your past. And yep. then also like, I know that like, you know, you ask for help, but then you end up getting hosed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, go like when you and I started the, the show, it's like, okay, so you ask for help, but then you go, you get a lot of these fluffy responses from people that have never been there, done that. You don't have like in Ray Dalio's, he talks about believability, been there, done that, experienced it. So like, it's just this hard, hard thing to do is find help, be aware that you need help not get screwed and also not jeopardize your relationships or, or reputation. <laughs> so there's a lot yeah, at stake. It, it is. And I actually think you a lot of great points there. One is that um, I'm asking for help sign a weakness. I certainly had that, but I also think mentorship in, in whatever form it is, and it doesn't have to be a paid coach, but I, I talk about this and think about this, which is I tell my entrepreneurs this, which is there's a very different like mentorship. One, you should have multiple mentors, mentors, and two, make sure that their experience is both relevant and timely. And what I mean by that is if you're trying to, in my case, I was trying to hire a head of sales. I went to a former CEO who had just gone through this and was teaching a class at Stanford about sales hiring. That's a pretty relevant data point. I see a lot of entrepreneurs that'll go get a 75-year-old, not to be ages, but 75-year-old former CEO of a Fortune 500 company to be an advisor to their startup. That's both dated and irrelevant from the experience. So I really think that as an entrepreneur, thinking about what phase, like to your example, if you're going to go sell your business and you're thinking about it for a year in advance, go find someone who sold a similar business recently that can give you practical advice. Mm -hmm. That's just smart. But going to talk to an M&A banker at Goldman Sachs for a small business sale, probably not going to be helpful. Well, I think even even to continue that is like going and asking your attorney, CPA, or advisor what it feels like and what to prioritize as it relates to the deal structure terms and conditions. They can give you the pros and cons, but they can't make your decision for you because they've never done it. <laughs> that's exactly right. I, that's the thing too is I love advisors. I have had throughout my career, uh, I've always looked at advisors and I used to be one. So I was like, yep, I get it. You're on the sidelines. You're You're telling me I should probably you know, hand the ball off versus run it myself, but you weren't in the game with the 300 pound linebacker about to rip your head off. Very, very <laughs> different uh, perspectives. Well, it's, uh, and I think there's this whole concept of the skin in the game. You don't know if you're familiar in the scene to lab, you know, it's like people give advice, but they don't have any risk in the outcome. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, oh, how are, yep. I mean, so that makes sense, but you, you know, this is life or death for me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is not a hobby and yeah, exactly. And so that's where you can go get help, but make sure the help you get is, has been in that movie. So what is the third? So you, we covered self-awareness and help. What, what are the, the, what's the third one? Yeah. So then it goes from, and it, these aren't necessarily building blocks, but they tend to work better in my opinion. But uh, A, the third is, so it's shape, S-H-A-P-E. A is, I didn't realize ape. I just picked it up. I didn't even know that it was hidden in there. But <laughs> A is for authenticity. P is for persistence. And E is for expectations. So when going back to like, as you, maybe I want to kind of get into some of the, uh, I'm super intrigued with how you started the business too, because you said that you acquired a business and I don't like curious on the thoughts and how you went about that. And then you used a private equity firm. So I'm just curious on the structure of that, and I'd love to keep weaving in these thoughts yeah. um, along the way. Cause I like just, you went about it, this a different path because you had different ownership structures that people might not have been able to have experience with just one of them, but you had multiple experiences on these. Yeah. So I, I was um, one of my, one of my really good mentors. I said, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wrote when I was in business school, I said, within five years of, of graduating, I want to be running a business. Didn't know how, had no idea, et cetera. I went and watched venture back startup with Mark and Ben. Uh, the company was called loud cloud. It turned into Opsware. And I saw the first two years of that. And what it showed me was, boy, these guys are really smart. They're super technical. And the venture route to entrepreneurship, which I do today, is only one path there. So I, I did what's called a search fund. And it's becoming a more popular. It's also called entrepreneurship through acquisition. But I didn't know. I, I didn't have an idea. And one of my friends said, that's kind of a big problem if you want to be an entrepreneur. So it's good to have friends like that, right? They keep you <laughs> humble. Awesome. But see, yeah, that's a pretty good point. Um, but I, did, I came across this model where you can raise a small pool of capital 
to go look for a business to buy. So in my case, I had been here, I'd been this investment banker, and then I'd been working with Mark Andreessen flying on his private jet a year earlier than I quit. I raised a small pool of capital, rented a cheap, crappy office outside of San Francisco International Airport, took a massive pay cut, and I started looking for companies to buy across the US. And at the time, this is 20 years ago, that meant cold calling businesses, that meant sending out letters and flyers trying to find a company in the, we were looking for businesses between two to 3 million and max maybe 10 million of revenue to go buy and operate. And so it was a really fascinating experience where I was doing, I was on the other side of a lot of what you talk about. I was the one calling up saying, hi, my name is Mike. I'd like to buy your business and then I'm going to operate it. And so you, you filled a void because there's a lot of uh, business owners that don't want to sell on to just to a private equity firm. They want someone who's going to continue on their legacy and that's what this model, the search fund allowed us to do. So I had a business partner at the time. We found a business. It was 2003. It was probably the worst time to raise capital in a long, long time. We'd had the dot-com uh, crash in 2000. Then we had 9-11. There was war going on. Uh, it was a really bad time, from uh, certainly financially. Uh, so we found this business and we had to scrape together a bunch of capital. We had to find some private equity to give us some equity capital. We tried to find some lenders to give us debt capital. We couldn't find anybody. And by hook or by crook, we ended up buying this business for about, um, it was about 12 million bucks in total. So <clears throat> super interesting because I was, I've, I've done a lot of interviews with, you know, different versions of private equity, some, you know, holding companies, you know, all these different types of exit options. And, you know, the, the search fund and that we call it, you know, Walker Dibles calls it the acquisition entrepreneur. Like, I think there's yep. a varying degrees of, you know, you got someone that's going to take their 401k or their equity in their house and then use an SBA loan to buy a business. And then the true, tr you know, traditional search fund where you have someone like yourself that goes and finds money from other people, the actual capital, and then uses, you know, their equity and debt to get there. I just, and there's, there, I think there's a huge or explosion of that, Mike, because of just the cap, the inefficiencies in the capital in the lower market right now is just crazy. I couldn't agree more. And I also think, um, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. I think it's a great way to become an entrepreneur. And also I like it because I think, I think there's a lot of, um, back to that kind of popular press, I'll digress a bit, but you know, all the headlines around Airbnb is worth a hundred billion dollars, this podcast at the end of 2020, you know, these IPOs and everyone's talking about unicorns and all this stuff. And I think it can be really defeating for an entrepreneur because you think, well, I don't have a, I don't have a hundred billion. I don't have a billion dollar idea, right? I'm a, I'm a loser, which is so, so wrong. Mm -hmm. I think what it comes back to is there are multiple ways to be an entrepreneur. You can, and I, I advocate more for bootstrap than any other way. Cause then you keep the whole business, but you can start something by bootstrapping it. You can go out and in my day job, you can go raise capital from firms like Next Coast Ventures. That has a different pros and cons. Or you can go look to acquire a business via something like the search fund. I'm passionate about entrepreneurship, but I like to underscore that there are multiple paths and you should not get assume that you have to, if you can't come up with a billion dollar idea on your own, that it's not worth pursuing. That's just a, a horrible way to think about it. Well, it's so crazy too, because like, I mean, when you look at just cash flow, you know what I mean? Like in the, a lot of these valuations that are just, you know, constantly pushed into the the media, like no one's even making any money. No. <laughs> and it's so funny because like in our training, Mike, we're like we ram into people's heads. Value is based on the sustainability, predictability, and transferability of your cash flow. And then yet you go and everybody turns to the media and they're like, well, no one makes any money. And I'm yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> and exactly. Like, they're I like, mean, I don't know, Ryan, that sounds kind of crazy. Yeah. I'm like, trust me. The, this is like gravity. It will come back at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, time matters. And, and right now, the other thing you have is you just have the U.S. government, for a whole host of reasons, has been a printing press of money. Mm -hmm. And so you have an in, uh, amount of capital available is tremendous. And so you have inflation around uh, asset values, certainly in technology. And it's, it is not sustainable. If there's one thing that we all know, go back through history. If you're any student of history or Warren Buffett or what I have just you, say Buffett, these, man. <laughs> these things go up and down um, and we're just in a wild up period right now. So when you bought the business and I, you then had it for 12 years, so what was the arrangement with the capital? Like, and what, what were some of the things that you did to, to build the business from 30 employees to 3,000 in 12 years? And was there, with the fact that you would raise a search fund, bought the business at 30 employees, you bought it for 12 million, you grew it to 3000. Was there any like built to sell mentality to begin with? 
And did your did your financial knowledge on valuations, how to actually grow value, impact your strategies that you you deployed over those twelve years? Yeah, a lot, a lot there to unpack, but certainly on the last point, it did, and I think that's why your advice to entrepreneurs thinking about it it really does matter. We were fortunate that uh, so so backing up a little bit on the search fund. What's really interesting about it is the economic relationship with my equity investors was tied to their performance. So your equity, the equity I was going to get in the business was based on a portion of it was based on how well I did for them. So great alignment there. So that if you ever want to get a clear crystal, like how do I build value, have all of your equity tied to what your investors get works out pretty well that way. Can I, but can I, put, oh, sorry. No, I was just gonna say like, before that goes away, such an important part, Mike, because I think what you're the structure, if you could give maybe a couple of more clarifying details on it, because a lot of entrepreneurs that listen in are first time founders, not P or VC backed yet. And they're at some point they're, they're, they're needing to boost the value and accelerate their growth, the right kind of growth. So therefore their executives, we know I've done some podcasts about phantom stock plans, tying it to future equity growth. And so like, it's kind of similar where like you're all growing the right kind of growth instead of just top line that's financed potentially. Yeah. I, I think that what you're hitting on is such a critical point. So it, it ties to another question. Yes. What did we do? We knew it was a service base. It was a service business with a technology component to it. We were very clear what the drivers of growth were from day one. And we knew it would be revenue growth, sustaining some level of gross margins that were consistent. So provability of the gross margins. And then ultimate, it was a profitable business. So in our case, EBITDA uh, was the was the metric that everyone used. So we knew that if we could, and we had this very specific formula, if you can grow a, a service-based business greater than 30% and generate consistent EBITDA levels, you're gonna every year you're just gonna grow the value of the business because they trade off a multiple of EBITDA. So not to get too technical on the math, but- Oh, it's all good, man. I dive into it. Yeah, you got you know this, but if you got a $100 million business and it's generating $20 million of EBITDA, which is a great business, if you can grow that to 130 and EBITDA grows in line with it, the multiple doesn't have to move. You've just created substantial value. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, again, that's kind of right. no, no shit Sherlock stuff, but- No, nope, but, but it's but not though, man. It's well, like awesome. What's happening in the public, to your point in the public markets, it's all this nonsense- but if you just want to, over time, if you can take a business and grow it at a reasonable rate, a consistent rate, doesn't have to be crazy, and have a consistent profitability, you will generate tremendous wealth for yourself and for your employees. And it's, it's when you get, you know, you start to go way too fast on the growth and you get distracted by that, or you don't have a sustainable, really the unit economics of the business, how we thought about it. Unit economics, like, you know, I buy something for $5, I sell it for 10 and I spend $2 on sales and marketing. That part is so important, but but often overlooked. And it, it's, it's so interesting because there's this whole mindset shift, which is a lot of the stuff that we teach in our training that you, I mean, you went and got lots of certifications for before you got into the Silicon Valley world where like the, you know, trading on a level of EBITDA and understanding normalized EBITDA, the things you're reinvesting aren't impacting, they're, you know, they're not devaluing your company. So many people are minds, their mindset is this, cash flow, right? Salary distributions, perks, right? They're living off this. And I'm talking like it could be a couple hundred thousand dollars or millions of dollars. They're just optimizing for that K1 versus understanding the investments are normalized. So it's impacting your profitability that year from like, you know, your cash, but it's like growing the value of the business because you take that out. And it's that mindset that I'll, I think is that next gear Mike, that people don't necessarily know why or how to reinvest because they don't have that view. So it's not as common in the in the up and down the street businesses. Yeah, and I think you're right. And that's that's one of the things that your training is really helpful. And it, it is a, if you're pragmatic about it, I think that's often the hard part, right? It's like, you know, here's the weird thing about it. If you go to someone and you know, someone looks at their house, right? If you're in the area where I'm like Austin, where markets are going crazy, you look at it and say, do you think your house would sell more if you had a, a nicer bathroom? Yeah. Okay. Would you spend, you know, $10,000 to redo your bathroom and it would increase the home value by a hundred thousand? Yeah, I'll do that all day long. I mean, it's a very, if you think about it that way, it's very pragmatic, but I think sometimes, especially, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're working 80 hours a week, you got all these other things to do. And someone says, Hey, we should hire a couple more salespeople. That is daunting, hard, and you know all, all the things we talked about earlier. So yeah, I'm with you. It's it's a it's an interesting and different mindset. 
Well, it's, it's not the, I, I just have to say this analogy because it's on the top of my head right now. It's like, it's like, yeah, that that's a pragmatic way of like, you know, growing the value of your house. But have you ever seen someone's house that like custom made it, Mike? And you're like, what in the hell yeah. did yeah. they do to that thing? <laughs> and they're like, and they're like, well, you know, over here's my coffee spot and over here's this. And like, they value it like so much. And then you're yeah. like, this is not practical for any human being to live in this house. <laughs> yeah. And that's like, like what people do with their business, they optimize it for the cash flow, but they've got these nooks and crannies all over the place, not thinking that think someone else it. has to move in at some point. That's a, that's a brilliant way to think about it. Yeah. So, okay. Over those 12 years then, what was, what, how did you scale it to 3000 employees over 12 years? What was the market opportunity? What were you guys doing and how'd you guys, you know, were there things that crucially led to that, that growth? Yeah, I mean, we, we were very fortunate. One, it was a good business. Fundamentally, it was basically we found an area of, of that most technology companies overlooked, and that was their recurring revenue base. This is again twenty years ago. Now it's become very vogue, but basically, mostly hardware and software companies would sell uh, an asset, and then they would have a service contract that went along with it. Mm -hmm. uh, they put all of their time and money on building the new product and very little on the actual sales of the service contract, which is the most profitable part of the business. Again, now with the cloud and SaaS models, uh, software as a service, that's become much more, um, it's kind of common knowledge, but at the time it was innovative. So we saw that, uh, the founders of the company did, and I bought it and we basically looked at it and said, the three areas of growth that are going to, to turn this into an interesting business into a billion dollar plus business was focusing on sales and marketing. It wasn't something that you woke up and thought about. So really a ton of focus on building our brand, market awareness, and then and building a amazing sales team. We also knew that in our case, analytics, so putting energy dollars and, and time into having better analytics so our customers could see what we were talking about. Uh, and then third was expansion internationally. So it ended up 40% of our business expanded or wasn't came from outside the US. So at, a couple of years in, we saw the as big as the US opportunity was, we decided to go down and, uh, and double or triple down on international. So those three things took this business from, uh, it grew, 40% year over year for multiple years. Um, and still publicly traded today. It's called service source. But I think it was those three things in terms of specific things to do. But the most important thing I think we did, if there was a number four, number one, a was a maniacal focus on customer, everything we did, uh, including I did, I found this trick it was a good trick. We put in our staff room when we do staff meetings, we put an empty chair and we put the customer's name on it. That's awesome. We trained employees to do that. So we basically, I, I always said, I wanted to build a company that people love to come to work, that it was an enjoyable experience and help them develop and grow. And that third, that our customers saw real value. And that was just, I, I see it all the time getting overlooked. It's such an easy thing to think about, but do your customers love the experience they're getting? Do they see real value and do they want to keep doing business with you? What did you do to stay in touch with that as you grew a huge company? Well, early on, and the other thing I learned, this is a great uh, Ben Horowitz from when I was at LoudCloud. I'll digress a little bit. Ben told me this really interesting thing. I was employed, I was the first, or I was like this third non-founder to get hired there. And Ben said, the only, the first employee, first 50 employees that we hire are all that mattered. And if you know, I mean, Ben's this very specific guy, brilliant thinker. He's written what I think the best book on startups called The Hard Thing About the Hard Thing. But I looked at him, I was like, what are you talking about? So, you know, we're going to build a big company. And he said, because... The first 50 are going to set the culture of the business. And then after that, they're going to go hire employees. And they're going to hire employees, employees, and culture will leave my hands and go to theirs. And I thought that was, you know, of all the advice you get, you're like, wow, that is brilliant. And so I tried to bring that to the company, to service source. And it really started with just helping employees understand those three things I talked about. I talked about every all hands. This mm -hmm. is going to be a great place to work. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to develop your career, and we're going to serve our customers in a way that's meaningful every time. And then those became, you know, you always see the companies that have values where the eagle's flying on the wall. And mm -hmm. I always laugh at this, you had a big company, and there's an eagle flying over a canyon. It says, we treat people great. And then you go into a meeting <laughs> with that thing, they're like yelling at each other. You're like, what the fuck? Like, your, your values are <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah. poster on the wall is not what you're talking about. We really thought about if we can put this into everything from our training, our recruiting, how we review employees, and how we communicate. Then it then it becomes an, a living thing, not some silly poster on a wall. So, what was a hard situation you, that you can recall, if there was one, if there's not, no big deal, that you found yourself out of alignment with this? 
Yeah, I um, well, multiple examples. I, I remember one where we had probably three or four salespeople who were trying to hire, scale the sales team. I talked about our outside sales team. And we had one guy who was just killing it, like literally the only guy. The other three, I don't know what they were doing. This one guy's crushing it. There's only one problem. He was he was an asshole, to, to use a very specific term. And he was doing things that- <laughs> I know what that just, means. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Very, very- No, I love it. <laughs> yeah. Subtle term, uh, but he was basically just not living to our values. And we found him in a couple of situations where he was, he wasn't, this is things like ethics are one of these things. I don't want to be a preacher, but when someone does something really wrong, it's easy. That's when it's easiest to act. The hardest time to act is when it's in the gray area. And this specific individual was going into the gray area and we had to fire him. And literally there's probably 60 people in the company at the time. And the look on people's faces, like you just fired Fred, not his real name. Mm-hmm. And it was a bit of like, holy cow, that was the only guy that was bringing new business. But then we actually explained why as much as we could, underscored one of the things that was so important to us was values and how we treated ourselves and our customers. And then from there, it, it literally caught fire in a way I didn't expect. I thought employees would freak out and they did for a minute. And then they realized, no, these, these guys really, these guys, meaning my employee mm-hmm. executive team, these people, are really going to stand up for what they're what they're talking about and that was a big difference that's yeah it's never easy man like and especially when they're when they're pulling in the dough and you need the cash <laughs> yeah yeah so where in the you know as you was it an ipo always on the the forefront or like what was the main way to liquidate and how did you know it was time and like what what started when did the conversation start happening yeah, it's really interesting. So this was a, a wildly profitable business. And we actually did a bunch of what's we we raised capital, but we raised secondary capital. So I was very fortunate. I had great value-based investors. One uh, benchmark capital came in a few years in, and then another one, General Atlantic, came in and they actually bought shares in the company. But rather than us issuing new capital, we they actually bought it from shareholders. So it was a, a secondary share. So the business didn't need more capital to grow, but we wanted to get liquidity. So we did that a couple of times. And really the IPO was, uh, I sat down with my team. We were at an uh, offsite. Admittedly, there was a couple of bottle, bottles of wine involved. And we said, I said, where do you guys want to take this business? Because we can keep doing this where we sell, we provide liquidity through a secondary shareholder thing, or we can go public. And really everyone looked around it and thought that, A, it was the right thing for the company. It would help our brand. And they all wanted to be part of that experience. So that was a real driver to it. I was very fortunate to have a great board. They weren't pressuring us to do it. And there was other alternatives. We could have sold the business or we could have done another recapitalization. We thought an IPO would be the best thing for us. And so we moved forward on that path. So you say it's the, you said that everybody agrees that it was the right thing for the business. Can you articulate what does that mean? Like, like when you say, like when we are sitting down, and you've got all these different people that have different interests of what they want from their jobs, their passions, their money. How did you identify where they were all giving their opinions from? And then how, what do you mean by it was the right thing for the business? Yeah, right. That's a wonderful question. I don't think I did that. Well, I probably should have done more of that. No, it's all great, man. Like, well, in retrospect, you know, I probably think, and you know, listen, I'll be in the, in the spirit of full disclosure. I had ego. I mean, everyone has ego involved. I think as I look back now, it was almost 10 years ago. I, for whatever reason, thought that it would be a, and I still talk about today, like I I ran a public company. So there was something around that for whatever reason, maybe that chip on the shoulder or monkey that I, I wanted to pursue it as well as my team. But it was just kind of a shared desire professionally to mm-hmm. have been part of an executive team that took the company public. So there's somewhat of a, it's not that common. But I think if that was the only driver, we wouldn't have done it. The secondary driver was, it was a business in a market that was trying to create a category. And we were hundred and I don't know, 150 million in revenue at this point. So we we're getting decent sized, but we were still wanting to create the category and have the capital and balance sheet to be able to invest more into the business and create more brand awareness. So when I say that was the right thing for the business, we felt like continuing to run it as a, just redoing these recapitalizations wouldn't help us get a more capital in the business and B wouldn't help us get more brand awareness, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not that we achieve that or not, but at least that was the thinking at the time. Super helpful. No, it's, it is helpful. And so I'm curious, like I, we don't have time on today's show to talk with the intricacies of the IPO, but like, you know, what are some takeaways? Cause like we, you know, in our training, we don't teach people how to do public offerings because that's a whole different animal. What, you know, when you're, yeah, what, 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 
what are one or two comments that you have about the process? Uh, be careful what you ask for. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, I would say that the ego, um, ego aspect of the way it was. So the firm that took us public, we're out in New York, we have a celebration and one of the final closing gifts, cause they've made millions of dollars on this transaction. Uh, they flew my wife and I home on a private jet. So we're flying home in a private jet and it's pretty cool. We're flying over Toledo, Ohio. I remember looking out the window like, Oh, wow, there's still Ohio. And I tell you that, that, at ecstasy, uh, that was a Saturday. By Monday morning, when I started getting beat up by public shareholders, that all went away. So I would tell you that um, when I say that in all seriousness, listen, I think right now IPOs are coming back in vogue. They're easier to do now because of video conference. I had to go travel all around the country and, and actually <laughs> yeah. go to Europe too. But I would say that, and I would step back a little bit and say, whenever you're going to raise capital, think about what, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the show, but think about what the person who's giving your money is expecting out of the transaction. And so what I mean by that is when, when Next Coast invests in a founder, we sit down with the founder. It's part of our uh, Tom Ball, my founding partner, and I's principal. What we want to do with things, we're always going to share our clear expectations with our entrepreneurs. So I sit down with an entrepreneur now and say, here's what it, how much money we're giving you. Here's what I expect it to turn into. And here's how long I think it should take. It clears day. So the entrepreneur goes, oh, okay, now we're aligned. To answer your specific question, when you mm -hmm. go public, there's a 20-blank-year-old super educated spreadsheet jockey. He doesn't, and she doesn't give a shite about your employees, your customers. <laughs> all she or he cares about is the stock going from $10 to $12. That's all they care about. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be, you can look at that and say, oh, that's vulgar. But no, that, that's what their job is. It's they reality. Really don't it is what it care. is. Yep. And so I just think whenever you're looking at capital, if your uncle Fred's giving you some money, what does uncle Fred expect? Next coast, or all the way to IPO, they just have different expectations. And if you don't really think about what they are, you can get yourself in trouble pretty quickly. So how long did it take you to, to start Next Coast Ventures? And now that you're on the other side of this, how are you getting to that when you're giving money to people? Yeah, so um, it took us about a year to start Next Coast Ventures. We, I was fortunate that my co-founder, our, our mantra is built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. So we'd both been entrepreneurs before. We saw Austin as a really amazing place. Even now it's every cover of every newspaper, but we wanted to build a firm outside the Valley that was gonna be built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. It took us about a year to raise our first fund, a $90 million fund, raise our second fund, 130 million. Um, so we've grown pretty quickly. It's been a lot of fun and we've been blessed to have just phenomenal entrepreneurs working uh, on our behalf. To our the way we think about it, it's pretty simple. Whenever we're looking at a new investment, we look at it and say, how big is the market? So what's the market opportunity? How disruptive is the solution? How unique or differentiated is? But then the bulk of our effort comes down to the entrepreneur. Uh, and we, we have this term inside our firm called glass eater, which is not fun. I talk about it in the book too. Uh, we basically say, is the entrepreneur willing to do everything within legal and ethical boundaries, but everything necessary to take this business to the next level? And we call that glass eating and the very, uh, again, very visual example. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, because you know, you've done it, I've done it. It's, if you don't expect this to be hard, you're getting yourself again in a world of hurt. But are you going to have the tenacity? And again, back to the monkey, are you going to fight through Mr. Monkey or Mrs. Monkey and keep going and to push this forward? That's, that tends to be 95% of our conversation once we've gotten through the market and the disruptive, the disruptive nature of the solution. And you guys, you guys have invested in quite a few companies at this point, right? Yeah, we've invested in uh, over 50 companies um, all across the U.S. About 70% of our capital has gone into Austin, but we've got a company in, in your hometown in Minneapolis. We've got one in Montana, a couple in Salt Lake. So we're really looking for companies that kind of, you know, in the proverbial flyover state. So that's where we'd like to put our money. So why don't, why don't you just give your quick definition? Because I love, love you and everybody's perspective, but I, I see a lot of um, definition of VC, private equity, and we, we touched on search fund. The reason I think this is important, Mike, is that like, you know many times in the mid-market entrepreneur space that I hear people totally screw up VC and private equity? Yeah. And I keep bringing it back up because I don't think people can hear it. I'm like, oh yeah, the VC, literally talk to a, um, a doctor that owns a, uh, the healthcare uh, system and clinic, and they're like, oh, the VCs are in. I'm like, nope, VCs nope. are definitely yeah. not rolling yeah. up yeah. clinics yeah. right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you step all the way back, there's capital. How do you get money to grow your business? And that can be debt capital from a bank, or it can be equity capital where you're selling part of the business. 
the the variance I think about it is in venture capital by its very definition going all the way back. Some, I read this somewhere. It's about to do with the the whaling business from 200 years ago or something. But yeah, basically, I, I literally just heard that story too. Yeah, story, and it's about where carried interest because carried is how much of the whale you could carry back. So, but, but I think <laughs> I did important. not know that. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah that's that's where carried interest. I, mean, I don't know. This could all be like this could all be urban legend at this point. Uh, Twitter, you know, I, I heard it on Twitter. So how, I do how not have a big enough company to fact check. So <laughs> everybody's on their own on that one. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, everything you read on, on Twitter and Facebook is true. So it's got to be right. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, what, what I bring up is because venture, I think it's most important for entrepreneurs to think about is folks like me, um, one, I need in, in our game, if there's 10 companies that we invest in, we expect 30 to 40 or three out of four, 30 to 40% to fail, literally to go out of business. So we expect there to be a pretty high failure rate. We expect that a couple will do okay, return some of our capital and generate a good return, and then one or two are going to blow it out of the water and get to a significant valuation. So we are inherently taking risk and therefore a good business that's cash flow positive, as weird as it sounds, if it's unless it's growing at a massive clip, isn't going to fit into what most venture, it's not going to compensate for the loss ratio. If, I, if you give me $10 and I'm going to lose four of them, then the other six have to more than make up for the losers. And I think that's where, mm-hmm. when you think about capital and understanding venture, and that's why we share that with our entrepreneurs, we also have very long hold periods. Our fun lives are 10 plus years. So I'm, oh, cool. I'm not expecting something to happen in the next three to four years. I'm, it's patient capital, but I'm playing for a really big outcome versus private equity that tends to be much less risk tolerant but also is, is playing for typically a shorter period and a smaller return. They're not expecting to lose money. They're expecting to have a pretty good return and most of their portfolio to provide that return. Yeah, what I find super interesting that's uh, exacerbating a lot of this problem of all these lines getting blurred is that you've got so many people chasing no yield that like you have private equity firms that are investing in VCs or investing in real estate because they can't get the returns for their investors that they promised. And you got VCs that are now like, hey, maybe we should get some yield. I mean, it's just such a blurred line of where all these things uh, fit together. Any experience of like, you know, in your space of the like, how you're seeing movement happening or what do you, I mean, how do you see the capital and where it's chasing yeah. in the next 12 months? Yeah, it, it is a fascinating time. I think we've seen, I think the other thing that's happened is these a lot of these funds are getting so big that, and this is good for us, good for Nexco's, because a lot of firms in the Valley that are now, you know, they were a 300 million, 700 million, or a billion dollar fund. So their check size has to go up. And I think this is a, a risk because they're, they're putting a ton of capital early into companies and founders and expecting them to be able to manage that. So there is a lot of a wackiness going on. And I do think, um, I don't think it goes away anytime soon, by the way, there's way too yeah. much capital out there. I don't think interest rates move for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to continue, but yeah, I think every day we're, we're bemused by something that we see in the market, a valuation being paid, a firm coming into an area that they don't spend a lot of time in. Uh, and then also, unfortunately it, it starts to skew entrepreneurs expectations sometimes in a, in a less than positive way. Well, and then I've seen like, and then the fact that you're, there's less deals that are big enough with big enough opportunities that you have the founders that are kind of calling the shots and they yeah. might, they, they necessarily shouldn't. Going back to your book and the five steps in this shape format, like you've done some pretty cool shit. <laughs> so like, how did you, how did you like apply this throughout some milestones? And then how do you, how do you deal with it now? Did it, does the self doubt go away? Are there th- rituals that you have to just realize that, you know, what you're doing is, is, is impressive stuff. Like how, how do, how do we bring this home? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, thank you for saying that it's been a great journey. I mean, uh, my joke about the book is like a little bit like entrepreneurship. If I knew how hard it was going to be, I wouldn't have done it, but I'm glad I did. Uh, I remind, you know, reiterate what I said earlier, all the proceeds are going to charity. And I really wrote the book in, in the hope that somebody, and I had a very specific, I was raised by a single mom. So I thought about my, my mother back in the day trying to start a business. Like what advice would I try and give her? Oh, that's awesome. That was my, my visual as, you know, kind of think about your audience. 
and and that, well, I wrote that then, so it's it's hopefully practical and pragmatic, and it's a quick read. I guarantee it's a quick read. It's mm-hmm. not the I don't the Pulitzer Pulitzer however it's pronounced is not calling me. I'm not expecting that call anytime soon, uh, nor was that the goal. But uh, to your to your point about it is I think the greatest reminder for me and why it's so fun to do these shows is that the monkey doesn't go away. Um, and there are some practice, you know, whether it be meditation. In my case, I find when I'm meditating in the morning, when I'm taking care of my body the right way, I show up as a better person. I stay more balanced. That's for me. It's a different formula. You also should get a dog. I mean, there's some specific things I think you can do to make sure your environment is uh, provides some self-care, both you specifically in your network. But then I think the other point is really important is that it doesn't go away. The voice will change. It'll move. It'll start to sound like somebody else, perhaps. Oh, you're getting older. Okay, well, maybe just that's what aging's all about. Ah, bullshit. No, no. Like, how can you take care of yourself, your body better, so that doesn't become a, a deterrent in your body mm-hmm. in your uh, progress? Anyways, I think that that's the biggest thing that I've learned, and I try to share in the book is it doesn't go away, but it doesn't have to defeat you. There's a way that this voice can become a frenemy, can help you around, uh, see around some corners, and hopefully be successful in whatever you whatever that looks like for you. If uh, what's the impact that you want to make? in this world and entrepreneurship. I mean, you've got, you know, you've, you've, there's kind of these three things that we've been circling around with my partner and I in this show is like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners just want to make more money, have more fun and make a big impact. And when you've checked off the financial bucket, then it's like, okay, you know, how do I have more fun and make an impact? So like for you, what would your wish be if you said, Hey, it worked? Yeah. Well, for, you know, fortunately you start with the basic, like I'm, I'm fortunate to be healthy and I've got a great family. So that's, that's kind of winning in most days. And I've been, I made a little bit of money along the way. So uh, gratitude is, is certainly where I, I try and put my energy towards, but I think for entrepreneurship, here's what I'm absolutely passionate about. I think the world needs desperately needs entrepreneurs now more than ever. Mm-hmm. And we need more diversity in entrepreneurship. If you look at the problems that we're facing have faced are facing, and, and the list is long. If you think right now, let's talk about uh, a pandemic, you think about education, you name it, whatever problem you want to point to, do you, would you count on the government? Would you count on a not-for-profit? Not that they, those people work really hard and they're going to do some good things, but I would bet every day on innovation and building coming from entrepreneurs. I think the problem we have is we need more entrepreneurs, we need more diversity in entrepreneurs, and we need when entrepreneurs are successful that they stay healthy. So you don't have some of the nonsense we've seen in the press or unfortunate situations we've seen in the press of, of, of people behaving badly. Or in one case, and an unfortunate, really unfortunate case a couple of weeks ago of the CEO of Zappos killing himself. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, like what better calling or horrific calling, I should say, that mental toughness and, and mental strength is really important. So my passion really is around trying to get the message out that we need entrepreneurs. It doesn't have to be, I also say this to you, you know, Zuckerberg started Facebook because he wanted to meet girls in college. Schultz started Starbucks because he wanted to have a small cafe like he'd experienced in Italy. Phil Knight started Nike, Shoe Dog, one of my favorite books. Talk oh, about him. He was book. a track athlete. He just wanted to have a better shoe. So you, you, you can start a small business and have an impact on yourself and your community. And it doesn't have to be a billion dollar unicorn nonsense. But most importantly, I think getting people to get out of the shower, dry off and get after their passion because it can change lives. It can change. It can bring innovation that's desperately needed and, and make a big impact in communities. So yeah, that's what I'm more than passionate about. Do you follow the the conscious capitalism movement at all? I do. I do. Yeah. My, my YPO chapter actually does a lot of work around that very framework. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. Alexander, the CEO has been on my show and I've, uh, and that's maybe where, when we were talking about Sonny Vanderbeck, uh, he raised his one and a half billion dollars on conscious capitalism as a fund. So he has no time period in his fund. <laughs> it's yep. super awesome. Yep. That's awesome. So two final questions for you, Mike. Um, one is what does the word intentional mean to you? Intentional? Well, I guess, uh, Ryan, if I say for me personally, it, it's how am I spending my time? And is it around, uh, I've got four pillars that I try and focus on and meditate on every day. So to me, intentionality means am I doing Am I putting my time and energy and commitments around those things that I, I say that I value? So that to me is all about intentionality. What is the best place to find you, your book, your blogs, everything that you're putting out? Well, thanks, Ryan. So the book is available, Mr. Monkey and Me is available on Amazon and all of my content. So I have Mike Smirklow, that's S-M-E-R-K-L-O.com. 
that's my social handle for anyone who wants to follow me. But on the website, there's some really good uh, blog posts about the mental aspect, not just the book. There's also a free chapter of the book, so you can check it out and see if it's of interest to you. And it's also got a really fun uh, survival quiz. So a way to test what aspects of the framework in the book that most are relevant to you. So check it out. It's mikesmerklow.com. And that's my handle for uh, all my social. Mike, this has been a blast, man. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I really enjoyed it. Great questions. Great conversation. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mike. You know, one of my big takeaways was even someone as successful as Mike with all the things that he's done from raise money, buy a company, take it public, raise a couple of funds, you know, just the dollar figures that we're talking about, the fact that he still second guesses his success is proof that we're all human and that you should recognize that the things that you intentionally go out to accomplish and that you successfully accomplish those over time it's well-deserved, and I think what should help eliminate some of that imposter syndrome is a really clear plan. The more intentional you are because of how clear you are, the more you're going to be confident that you're on the right track. You can say no to the things that don't matter. You can say yes to the things that actually do matter and move the needle, and you can eliminate the shock that you have that you're actually accomplishing those things. So I believe that education is the thing that makes everything easier and it gives you the confidence that what you're doing is the right thing or at least a very, very calculated approach towards the risk that you're taking. Given the fact that we appreciate education, I think you should go check out the Intentional Growth online course. Go to arcona.io, check it out on the education tab. There's a couple videos, some testimonials, and the curriculum on the website. If you've got any questions, make sure to reach out. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you next week.